Um, we have actually, yeah, Kamu said it right. We have an amazing individual in the office today, in the studio today. Yeah. Uh, someone who I'm proud to call my mentor. Yeah. Back when I was a uh, lawyer for human rights, we you, have, you need to explain that to me because I didn't get that on the message. What? What, what didn't you get on the message? Like, oh no, he's my mentor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had some burning questions, oh, which oh, I'll okay. still ask. All right, all right. Um, we have Arnold Tsunga in the building, former director of Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights, okay. former secretary of the Law Society of Zimbabwe, and currently director of the Africa Regional Program of the International Commission of Jurists. Wow. That's a long title. That's that's a crazy CV. <laughs> that's probably about what a hundred thousand a month worth. You think? Two dollars, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Mr. Tsunga. Thank you very much, colleagues. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Uh, popularly known as AT. Okay. Yeah. Which is dope. Which is dope. Can we call you AT on the show? Yeah, no problem. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a more Sounds very now, but that's <laughs> <laughs> Looking well. I- I'm glad now I can call him AT. Yeah, because back then when I was an intern at uh, lawyer for human rights, I could just say Mr. Tsunga. Yeah, and that was it. Yes, and then he would give you this eye, as in, what are you doing? Yeah, you don't look like you're doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> but you see now, you see, you've created a platform for yourself that allows you to call him whatever you want. Thank you very much. Yeah. Also, I think it's maturity. He's the one who actually told me, no, you can now call me Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think let's delve right into it. Um, there's so many burning issues, not just in, of course, this is Zim conversations and being Zim conversations. Uh, most of our conversation has to do with not just Zimbabwe geographically, but the impact of Zimbabweans on a global level. Yeah. Of course, there's something burning that's going on in Zimbabwe, but we have to take advantage of the fact that you are director of the ICJ Africa, yeah. uh, the African program. The first thing I'd want to know is what is the mandate of the ICJ in Africa? The ICJ is short for International Commission of Jurists. And International Commission of Jurists, that's an international organization of judges and lawyers who are, it was mandate basically protection and promotion of human rights using the rule of law as the framework. So we work with judges, we work with lawyers, prosecutors, as well as um, civil society groups that are concerned about the efficiency in the delivery of justice. That is the primary mandate. Okay. That is that is that is awesome. But my question is, Kamu, I think yeah. the big question would be how much authority. Does the ICJ does the ICJ have? Because we have, and which is why I asked that specific question. And I'm trying to phrase this very carefully. <laughs> um, looking at the human rights abuses and violations, let's stick to violations on a state basis around Africa. Where, how does the ICJ then um, intervene? Intervene? Yeah. Okay. We we do quite a number of um, interventions. The thing is that uh, we we have a very consistent lens that monitors the performance okay. of uh, the rule of law in different jurisdictions in Africa, but at a global scale because ICJ is a global organization and they just run the Africa program. And so things that we work against actively as an institution is areas of injustice, issues of uh, impunity, you know, where especially there's uh, widespread and systematic violations and there's no state intervention to protect civilians from, um, you know, uh, bad governance, conflict. Uh, there's also the question of, um, you know, looking at um, the legal system and how it's applied to either result in resolution of conflict in a way that accords with international standards 
or where the legal system is used as an instrument of repression. We call it judicial persecution. Mm. So there are times when you actually see that people who control the state apparatus use institutions of the state as an instrument of uh, persecution and danger to civilians. Mm. And in that situation, we we, we take some interventions. But basically, in, in brief, some of our interventions... Uh, in, include, you know, fact-finding missions where we do diagnostic uh, missions using our experts in order to try and deal with the impunity gap. This may involve investigations in cases where there have been, you know, serious violations such as uh, maybe um, enforced disappearances, abductions, executions, bring back arbitrary, <laughs> arbitrary detentions, and 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 so in those cases, once we do proper documentation, we have various methods of uh, trying to result in a situation where there can be change. It includes, in some instances, use where it's possible, where there's willingness and ability. We 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 use the legal system at the domestic level, but where there's no willingness and ability at the domestic level. Cases can actually be taken to what is referred to as supranational tribunals, where you can then get uh, uh, um, tribunals that are outside of the jurisdiction of where there is a problem mm-hmm. in order to try and bring about uh, justice, to especially perpetrators of uh, perpetrators of uh, injustice. But doesn't that need some sort of uh, domestic? Um, apparatus to allow the tribunal from outside, or is it just to say that we are coming up with um, with a resolution, not a resolution per se, but we are saying that there's injustice, and then you come up with a report, but then you can't really get on the ground. No, no, no. no it happened, the thing is, yeah, what what normally happens is that in areas where there are democratic, especially democratic deficits, where there's bad governance mm-hmm. and where uh, you have dictatorship, and 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 where institutions of protection such as the police, law enforcement agents, courts have been undermined and weakened and and then the system is now used to be a danger to citizens. In those types of situations, yes, you cannot rely on the domestic um, uh, justice system mm-hmm. um, uh, to deal with the systemic issues. You can you can deal maybe with uh, individual cases, but usually when you deal with individual cases of perpetrators, what you are essentially doing is. Um, Ignoring what we normally call the command relationship or the the, the, the political leadership or command responsibility of mm-hmm. those who occupy the positions of uh, defi- defining strategy and uh, allocation of resources and responsibilities to operatives to carry out the but, perpetration. You know, Arnold. So I, what I was going to say is that mm-hmm. in a but then. So, so in those situations where the domestic cannot mm-hmm. effect, offer effective remedies, then you, we have a number of tribunals that can can be used. In Africa, we have what is called the African Court on Human and People's Rights. People's Rights. We also have the African Commission. We then have sub-regional courts like uh, the East Africa Court of Justice. We have the Commissar Court. We have the ECOWAS Court. But at the international level, you also have the International Criminal Court. By virtue of you being a member of the AU, are you um, does that mean you are also privy to the African Charter on Human People's Rights? Yes, definitely. By virtue, and we have, and all states are members of the African Union. In Africa, fifty-four African countries are actually members of the uh, African Union by virtue of ratifying the African Charter. Okay, yeah. I have not seen it in effect. Come, have you heard of no. any? 
This is what Let, I wanted to ask because I wanted to say, okay, let's bring it back closer to home. Let's say in light of some of the scenes that we've seen in Zimbabwe lately, like obviously like uh, leading up to yesterday's massive shutdown. Mm. Um, in the instance whereby uh, the day the day prior, police were now then beating up citizens who were peacefully protesting mm-hmm. against whatever the case would have been. But um, at that point, how far does the ICJ go in terms of making an immediate and strong intervention that then prevents that happening again? Mm. The, the, the sad thing about international uh, institutions and international justice is that it plays what you call a complementary role to okay. the domestic. Yes. So mm-hmm. the principle is complementary right. uh, mm-hmm. rather than substitution mm-hmm. of an international mechanism to become a domestic mechanism. Right. It has got its own problems if you mm-hmm. intervene too prematurely because yeah. the effect is that you are now interfering in sovereignty. But at the same time, uh, the question of uh, um, timing as to when you intervene mm-hmm. is to allow for the state and in particular the leadership of a particular state like mm-hmm. Zimbabwe yeah. to be able to demonstrate that the actions of the police mm-hmm. is not an instruction of government. It's not yeah. part and parcel of a government police to deploy police against unarmed civilians and then to unleash organized organized state violence against unarmed civilians. So so if it continues uh, and reaches a threshold where the responsibility to protect us to kick in, mm-hmm. that is when the international community then begins to, to okay. look at okay. yeah. And that was that's when they have sort of a mandate and an obligation to the civilians to intervene. Yes, it's, it's basically the fact that sovereignty comes with responsibility. Exactly. And the primary responsibility is to look after citizens yes. rather than to be dangerous to citizens. That was going to lead me to my next question, Arnold, and this is a question I've posed to you on multiple occasions, even back then in the early 2000s uh, at Zimbabwe Lawyers. I was going to ask you what the situa- what the human rights situation is within Africa. And I think the biggest problem that was faced as a continent is lack of knowledge. The minute you mention human rights, first of all, Walk on the streets now and say human rights. People are very unaware very of their own rights. It's a very, yeah, it's, it's a foreign term to most people. Um, do you think that in pushing for human rights to be observed domestically, you'd need to educate the masses first? And what structures are there besides the ICJ? I don't see structures that actually invest in educating people on their human rights. Yeah. No, no, it's true that there's been, um, what I perceive also and in my individual capacity is a sort of reversal of gains that we made uh, towards, you know, the question of human beings being treated with dignity and mm-hmm. respect that they deserve. And I think uh, once the use of the phrase human rights uh, creates um, an academic atmosphere uh, yeah, and, and a terminology mm-hmm. that sort of delinks it yeah. with ordinary everyday experience of water, our own people. So food, yes. water, food, work, mm-hmm. uh, the question of the right to have uh, your law enforcement agents inspiring confidence in you, protecting yeah. you rather than harming you. Yeah. So I think uh, human rights are really inherent in us being yes. humans. But mm-hmm. the question of uh, uh, making it an ideology that is delinked yeah, from the everyday experiences, I think it has been a big tragedy, mm-hmm. and and um, yet everyone 
when you are born, you are born with an aspiration to live in dignity, to be respected, mm-hmm. to have shelter, to mm-hmm. have work, to have equal opportunities, and and to live peacefully. So, so, so I think human rights are really part and parcel of uh, the national value system and uh, part of Ubuntu uh, exactly. as yes. Africans. Mm-hmm. And 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 because you can't be a human being if you do not treat others the way you would want them to treat yeah. you. So, so I think uh, that simplification of human rights to be the way in which every human being aspires to be treated and to treat others. That's how we need to break it. So down. that's that's a challenge that we have because definitely we. I mean that. Like, like you said, you know, we have the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, and we have many um, regional um, conventions and treaties that are, you know, human rights based. Yeah. And that's, I think, that's an, a way that organisations have tried to assimilate, you know, our culture with human rights, as you said, Ubuntu. But I think so far it has failed, and that leads to my next question, which is: Africa, when we hear human rights, when the ordinary citizen hears human rights. From, of course, from propaganda, because, you know, I believe in people, you know, um, in human rights. From propaganda, the first thing they think is West. The West, and they believe take over. And the worst thing that happened was the ICC. The ICC has taken, how many African leaders have been <laughs> taken to the ICC? Yet Another George example. Bush is, is a war criminal. Okay. In my, in my, in my eyes, George Bush is a war criminal. Iraq was a, um, and, and, and a war crime. Yet he flew in. Which states Arnold asked for George Bush to be seized? Was that back in the mid-2000s? Was 2006, 2007? When he came efforts. for PEPFAR. Yeah, yeah. there have been various efforts. But uh, you know what? Let me put things into perspective. Mm. Just generally around the human rights movement in Africa and the disabusing ourselves of the notion that it's a Western notion. Yeah. Because I think asserting it as a Western notion is mainly the work of uh, dictators, mm-hmm. and 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 if you look at um, the the history of the human rights movement with regards to Africa, and let me start with the with, the, with even maybe with the slavery, mm-hmm. you know, sl- slavery of African people, um, it resulted in a huge movement, you know, the anti-slavery yes. movement, which was basically a human rights movement, yeah. and 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 and. They, they were they dealt with the structural aspects of uh, the slavery itself, but also the people who were actually operationally involved in it, mm-hmm. and it resulted in the abolition. And that was a, so. So that anchoring of a good fight for the human dignity, based on human rights. That's the foundation. Okay. Then we got colonized. Mm. The entire continent. <laughs> Once we got colonized, we didn't enjoy it. Mm. We, no. you know, even, you know, some of us were actually born during the colonial era and mm. were able to witness the fighting for the liberation of our own countries. Mm-hmm. Mugabe and the current leadership, they used the doctrine of human, human rights, rights. Human yeah. to, rights liberate, to liberate yes. Africa. Yeah, that's true. So if you look at the Organization of mm-hmm. African Unity as the constitutive act mm-hmm. that established yes. an yes. organization of African uh, states to be able to speak with one voice, the primary objective of the Organization of African Unity was decolonization, yeah. eradication of colonization in Africa. And, and once in 1994, <coughs> South Africa got its uh, freedom you saw that there was a quick movement between 94 up to 2000 to transform the vision of what Africa is mm-hmm. into the African Union. So the transformation from the Organization of African Unit, whose primary objective was fighting against colonialism on the basis that that is the human rights of African people, 
you then got us to the African Union, which was really spearheaded by people like Tabombeki. Mm-hmm. The only reason why Tabombeki and other leaders of that time said, as Africa, let's have the African Union, is because they said we got our political independence, but the human rights of our people, the human dignity of our people, the economic condition and mm-hmm. status of our people, it's a big issue. And we've not been able to get the post-colonial African state to address that. No. So it's a human rights issue. And, and so the setting up of the mm-hmm. entire African Union is anchored on the human rights of African people. This is why the African Charter was then adopted in 1986, mm-hmm. resulting in the framework of the instruments that must bind all African countries and how you and I judge the performance of people who rule us or who govern us. But Arnold, was there no Western influence in the Banjul Charter? Very, not, not too much. Minimal. Not really minimal. Because I'm, I'm going to speak from a, a dictator's point of view and say one of the biggest advantages that dictators have in crushing the human rights, well, the Western-influenced human rights uh, agenda is that, well, okay, we were colonized. After 1945, the um, uh, United Nations, formerly the League of Nations, uh, was put into place after World War II. And uh, Roosevelt was a big part of that, Eleanor Roosevelt. At that very same time, when they said, okay, all people are free, and you know, you had the UN Charter and so forth and so on, people were colonized. Most of Africa was still colonized. Where were you? 94 up until apartheid. Where was the international community? And then once our leaders get in, you want to take them to the ICC. I think this is one of the, it's it's very easy for the layman on the streets to think, okay, well, I mean, this person is right. These are facts. Yeah. Yeah, But human rights also at the same time, I must say, human rights is an issue for, for Africans that is non-appealing. If you look at it, it doesn't appeal to the ordinary person. No, it does not appeal to the ordinary person. Until because they're hungry. Until, okay, maybe <laughs> until they're hungry. And even when they're hungry, they don't understand that maybe it's because of certain interventions, for instance, like from the ICJ or whatever other funding organization or organization <laughs> that exists to help them is there. They don't really care. Because for them, they feel like they've been violated from day one, so it's never going to change. If you look at the shift of power from when, let's say, we're colonized to the point that we are now today, what's the difference? Are things gradually getting better from a human rights perspective or getting worse? I And you're right. And, and see, the, the, the post-colonial African state has betrayed the promise of okay. the anti-colonial struggle. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to Yeah. Say. The anti-colonial, <laughs> the anti-colonial struggle itself mm-hmm. was a manifestation of Africa's quest for human rights and human dignity, Ubuntu, essentially. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we followed uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the anti-colonial fighters, basically, yeah. the liberation movements. Yeah. And, 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 and that one, if you realize, there was even not a question of money. People no. left school, people left universities in yeah. order to go and fight for the liberation the yeah. of Africa. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the idea was that if you remove the white oppressor, and and you get into a majority majoritarian state, state yeah. then you are going to then allow for a situation where African people can be able to live in dignity and where their human rights are respected. Yeah. But precisely as you observe, 
that has not happened. No, that's mm. not. And the reason why it has not happened is because of the fact that the post-colonial African state itself, in terms of the structure of government, of government in yeah. terms of the leadership that has been provided, has been such that we have replaced essentially white uh, dictatorship with black, with black dictatorship. Black dictatorship. And, 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 and that model is not going to work for all of us. And, mm. and the fighting against human rights that the white supremacists were doing is exactly what the minority black leaders who are not giving their, a chance to their own states to evolve and mm. develop a value system that puts human rights at the center of uh, all governmental policies. Mm. And that's the problem we have. So I think in essence, when Tabo Mbeki and the other leaders said no, the organization of African unity in terms of mindset was uh, a war machinery by Africa yeah. to fight mm-hmm. colonialism. Yeah. But now we're in control of our, of the state. We're in control of our own resources. Exactly. In, yeah. So let's, let's now say we need an African Union that is value driven rather than just solidarity and fighting against exactly. colonialism. Yeah. This is why yeah. when you look at the constitutive act of the African Union, which was adopted in, in, in 2000, at the center of uh, the reasons is that there has been too much uh, human rights violations by African governments mm-hmm. yeah. and that we need a framework of African solutions to African problems. And, 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 and as so, you rightly said, solidarity has been a big problem because their solidarity is not, it's not a solidarity of nations. It's a solidarity of leader amongst leaders. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's so why when they have their own personal conflicts, that's, you know, we have problems. Exactly. Yeah. And then that's why the AU cannot intervene within Zimbabwe because everyone, most of their leaders are saying no and they yeah. clap after it does a very yeah. silly speech. But so this then brings the ICC question in because if the African Union by themselves felt that, uh, um, mm-hmm. having a union alone without mm-hmm. a certain value System, system that respects human rights is not enough. Therefore, let's have the African Union. But the African Union itself has also been wholly inadequate in terms of dealing with many of the systematic violations that have happened. Mm-hmm. If you look at one million people, for example, dying in a space of uh, 90 days yeah. in Rwanda. Yeah. Wow. And inability of African, Africa to intervene. If you look at uh, what has happened in the Congo, in the Central African Republic, what mm-hmm. is happening in Burundi, now in South Nigeria, Sudan, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So, so there was that saying that, which means uh, if we are unable to have domestic institutions or African institutions that can address uh, impunity, then let's have an international criminal court. So International Criminal Court was supposed to be complementary so that where there is inability at the local level to address impunity. The international community, community then comes assists. in to yes. buttress rather mm. than to substitute itself. Mm-hmm. So the African bloc, African countries were the majority of the countries that actually signed to the establishment. Why, did, why is it we're the majority? Because the United States is not signatory to, no. the, to, the, to the statute. Why did, is it that most African countries go quick to sign? Many reasons, including a, a genuine, firstly, I think a genuine desire to deal with impunity because of their own inability as African leaders to use the African institutions to address impunity. The second one is that uh, many of them didn't have strong domestic institutions uh, that could uh, result in prosecution and bringing to justice of perpetrators of human rights violations. But then once the 
question of the ICC removed immunity, immunity of the heads of state <laughs> from responsibility in situations where there are violations. Mm-hmm. That's where the ICC came into problems with the African Union. Okay. Because then, which means there was now a real possibility that they that could come African in and heads of state and a multitude of could, them. Yeah. yeah, a multitude of them. And if you see the loudest against the ICC's mandate are those whose situations are tricky and can actually warrant <laughs> an investigation that could possibly result in the prosecution, successful prosecution on the basis of evidence of heads of state. For was the first one, um, wasn't the first one Charles Taylor? Is he uh, the first head of state to actually be sentenced by the ICC? Under, it's not ICC, it's under an international criminal instrument of, uh, they established the International Court on Sierra, on, on, on Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And Charles Taylor had been involved in giving instructions to operatives to do systematic killing. So yeah. the war crimes there <laughs> resulted in him facing international criminal justice. Another international criminal justice that took away a head of state in Africa uh, is the Chad, uh, you know, Senegalese mm-hmm. chamber, mm-hmm. where the, the former head of state of, of Chad, Eastern Ebre, was also brought to a book and um, uh, tried and convicted mm-hmm. of war crimes. So, so we're beginning to see some movement where it takes a while, but heads of state will account for the violation but, of but the rights. I don't agree with that. I mean, that's just movement by choice. It seems like all these institutions are set up to target specific individuals at a stage whereby they feel they have enough to be able to actually bring them down at that point. If you look at the leader of China, if you look at Charles Taylor himself, at the point when all these people were then brought to book, it was at a period where their power had weakened to a, to a, to a stage whereby they could actually then we tried for things like this. I think with, okay, with Charles Taylor, it was more of he had lost within his own country. Which is so weakness. there was, well, well the weakness, <laughs> I think the weakness was the, the ICC does not hold a standing army. No, no, no. <laughs> so they could not, no, they could not come in and. But if you lose, if you lose an election in your own country, you have, you lack the support. Uh, then you're in trouble. Then you're in big trouble. <laughs> Which is why the leaders don't, exactly. <laughs> don't want to leave this, power. This is what I'm, this is exactly. This is what I'm saying. But I mean, I think I'm, it's in, in regards to, Let's take it slightly to a, a less academic and more social perspective yeah. and say, what is better? For example, what happened in Ivory Coast? Do we want a civil war first? And then do we want France to, uh, to intervene and then drop bombs and then destroy half of, um, uh, what is the capital of, of Abidjan? Abidjan. Yeah. Only for, I mean, I think it's better for things to be resolved locally. I, even, I don't know. Even Libya, you know. <laughs> Libya as well, you know. Yeah, because it's even then, I mean, like, look, if you say, fine, you don't want any sort of intervention whatsoever and would rather solve things locally, I'll give you a perfect example. And I'll keep referring to the one example that we should be, Zimbabwe. How are we going to locally deal with the problem that we have currently? Yeah. It, it, there, there are different types of problems. Come, and like I said, I'm, I'm taking from a social perspective. Do you think Zimbabweans would rather go to war right now? Of course. To war. Yes. So then why is it that they, and I, I needed to correct you, it, yesterday was not a protest. The people who went to protest were people who wanted to loot. Yesterday's thing was about staying away. Yeah. But it's staying at home. It's staying away. It was still, a non, it was a peaceful, non-violent protest. True, but yes. yes. It's still, which is All still I'm saying is I don't think Zimbabweans want, uh, F-16s <laughs> flying above them they have with, no with missiles. They have no choice. <laughs> no, but yeah. No, they have no choice right now. Honestly speaking, if you speak to the Zimbabweans on the ground now of the same intellectual capacity of people who actually have the same thinking that you do currently and would know that it's best to sit down around a table, have some tea and sign some documents to talk about things, 95% of them are ready to go to war. 
Ready. Uh, yes, because, I mean, think about what they're facing currently. You can't send your children to school. Your children are hungry. You can't deal with the major problem through the normal institutions that are available, right? Because in a democratic state, you should be able to vote this person out, right? And then get new leadership. Arnold, when is the last time we had a coup in Southern Africa? Was it Lesotho recently? We can't call that. Uh, it yeah. wasn't even. Lesotho, there is, uh, yeah, civilian-military <laughs> yeah. relations that are tense, but, but it's not the magnitude of a coup. But mm-hmm. it's a very weak governing structure. But again, as a result of that, this society can move forward mm-hmm. and, and opportunities disappear. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, it's a question of governance, even yeah. in Zimbabwe itself. Uh, I think the aspirations of the ordinary people is that they want to live peacefully. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to live in a situation where there can be opportunities and where they can pursue the best in themselves and, and, and where merit counts. But unfortunately, when you have a perverted um, governance system of Patronage like we have currently mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe, where only a few individuals have literally privatized the country <laughs> and that, uh, yeah. they, they run it as private property. Yeah. It's not sustainable. No, it's not. It may result in conflict like what's happening now. It's a low intensity conflict in the sense that uh, you call it a stay away, others call it a strike. Yes. Certainly yes. there will be sporadic uh, expressions of the of frustration yes. and, and, and the form that they take it keeps mutating and ultimately if uh, things really reach a point where it boils over I don't think people want war but war almost always results from the failure of governors to create an opportunity where conflict can be managed, dealt with, mm-hmm. and, and, and people allowed to participate effectively. Express themselves. In their governments, yes. yeah, and, 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 and where service delivered is given. So, so, so in, in a sense, it's not a, an, a, like warmonger no. mentality mm-hmm. that no. Zimbabweans have, but they are being pushed to a point where they have to take matters into their own hands. And yesterday's manifestation was very clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very silly for some of the political leaders who are in a comfort zone to begin to say we will crush and to begin to threaten. Because ultimately, uh, there's a limit to which violence and force can work in an mm-hmm. environment where there is abject poverty and yes. abject frustration and where you have stripped people of all their dignity. So ultimately it comes back again to treating people with respect, with human rights and giving them a real opportunity to effectively participate in their affairs. And their societies, yeah. So do you think the current uh, system that the ICC uses is adequate or do you think there actually needs to be some sort of uh, adjustment in regards to before, which is what Kamu is saying, yeah. that before we have to go to war, why don't we get in and remove someone when it's clear that this person is a human rights violator? And not in terms of, we're talking where people's lives are at stake. The, the problem with the ICC is that it has been incredibly weakened in terms of um, geopolitical influence and impact. And, and, and some of the concerns that you expressed earlier on is inability to deal with big fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and George then, Bush to be yeah. And then it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the only thing because I think the, the, the Pan-African focus of the ICC, um, which in itself reflects the fact that the African states when you look at the genesis of how it happened, mm-hmm. many of the situations, it was as a result of the fact that African governments invited the ICC to look at their geographical situation. So you cannot then turn around and say, but no, go you to that person. Us. Exactly. Yeah, there's yeah. no targeting. You right. asked for it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so like Uganda, Museven mm-hmm. asked for the ICC to come and look at the situation in the north because yeah. he wanted mm-hmm. uh, assistance to fight the Lord's Resistance Army. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so, 
but now he's at the forefront of saying that That's ICC okay. is useless. So there is also the political um, posturing by the African leaders, uh, which is as a result of the fact that they don't want to be accountable to their own people. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think the ICC, is, it has reached a stage where for situations like Zimbabwe, you, you need beyond the ICC. The ICC. You have to really the ICC look, is yeah. not a, a body uh, of the UN. It's, it's not an a body of, the, body it's of, an itself. of itself. Yeah. Okay. And then Zimbabwe, in any case, is not a member state there. Mm-hmm. And for Zimbabwe, I'm not too. <laughs> <laughs> and for Zimbabwe to be, member state, uh, to be investigated, the United Nations Security Council has to refer the Zimbabwean situation. And then you won't get it because there's the veto power of China, Russia. That is not, that they're, they're going to oppose to say we have worse situations. Look at what's happening in Syria. Look at what's happening in Libya, in uh, Nigeria with the Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. So Zimbabwean situation is too low intensity and it's a short governance problem that is likely to be resolved naturally or through other interventions in the next few years. Uh, Arnold, you were director of Zimbabwe for Human Rights at a very critical stage where I think things were actually worse in the country. From a human rights perspective. Um, from a human rights yeah. perspective. Even from an economic perspective. perspective. We're getting there. Okay. We're, we're getting there. Mm. We're going back. In okay. the next couple of weeks, maybe days, maybe hours maybe from now. Hours, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. getting back. But I remember being at Zimbabwe's, things were tense. Um, I would have to pick up Arnold uh, from the cells every now and then with Bill. <laughs> you know, things were very tense. Most of the country didn't see. What do you think that after so much time, it's been 16 years. What do you think has led to this, Arnold? Why now? It builds up. It builds up. You know, the thing is that uh, there's been a lot of betrayal of um, opportunities. When we got our independence in 1980, we were all euphoric that now we are there. And we had almost... 100% 100% support for Mugabe. Mm. And, and as a result, we developed a blind spot. We thought that uh, now the country is going to deliver in, on all fronts, economically, socially, mm-hmm. politically. And it seems so. For and it seems to do, yeah. Mm. 15 years strong. So, so, so at that point, there was absolutely no reason why anyone would be in the streets because things were, you yeah. know, the opportunities were well, there. Mm. But then once uh, we got uh, into wrong policies, you know, the economic structural adjustment mm. program, ESAP. then mm. the participation in the war in DRC that was unwinnable which would just gobble resources Mm -hmm. and then and, and, and then the crunch that came after uh, Mugabe lost the constitutional referendum and he decided mm-hmm. to use muscle to retain power. So those are moments that then generated again, you know, mm-hmm. a desire for change. And, and, and because in 2000, people were still on a good stomach. So they mm-hmm. could fight, uh, they could stand up to say we will don't want to get into a worse situation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that threat to have life you know, uh, conditions deteriorated so suddenly made people go onto the streets. And then once Mugabe systematically dismantled the opposition as well as uh, the structures of support mm. to the opposition. So he attacked the lawyers, he attacked civil society, he attacked churches, he attacked the media, white he farmers, attacked the white farmers, he attacked the economic structures, you know, industry to make sure that there is no oxygen that is used by mm-hmm. people to fight for their causes. Yeah. So I think it reached a point in 2008 where the deliberate 
unleashing of a policy to weaken and impoverish Zimbabweans reached a point where we were on our knees in mm-hmm. 2008. And as a result of that, there was that push again where through an electoral process, Shangri got an opportunity to run the country. But again, winning elections and not winning power exactly. resulted in a situation mm-hmm. where Mugabe then deployed again the military and security sector to reinforce himself. Mm-hmm. And then he also, lucky for him, got the diplomatic support in particular of Tabombeki. And Tabombeki's central role in deciding who, who should be in power in Zimbabwe rather than the electorate. The electorate. It gave ZANU PF and Mugabe a breathing space. That's when we, we formed the GNU. The GNU. So at that point, again, once BT in particular beat a single amount. Because he made he, a mistake, Arnold, because he fixed the economy for ZANU PF. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's, like you said, they've been given opportunities. He was given another opportunity. Because he did. Mm-hmm. Once the economy was sorted out and people began to get into a situation where they had food on the table. Yeah. They didn't care and, yeah. about governance issues the anymore. Governance issue again, blind spot developed. Yeah. And we actually thought, ah, now, which means the next election is a consolidation. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, ZANU was not sleeping. They managed to, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, they focused on power. Mm-hmm. So their central focus on power retention resulted in what happened in 2013. And unfortunately, because uh, Changirai, BT, and the leadership of the opposition focused on fixing the economy rather than consolidating their own the party. Own power, yeah. And then the result is what happened in 2013. And then again, which is Beautiful, Arnold. And you know, I mean, we we just were academics. We said, unfortunately, but I mean, thinking of it now, I'd never thought of it until you said, Arnold. They actually thought about fixing the economy. They actually had this, the nation at heart. No, of course they did, and that's what that's why the that's why the Zanu PF uh, government at that point went and decided to have a coalition government yeah. because they were happy to do that. You must remember, it, it wasn't a political move. Oh, they failed politically. No, totally. They understood. They said, "Okay, look, since these guys can't get power away from us, at least let's get them to do the work that to we fix do. the economy. Yeah? Mm. Fix the economy. Let's get more rich. And, and when we don't need them, we we'll kick them out. We kick them out because it was that easy." They're shrewd yeah. politicians. Yeah. That <laughs> very. In terms of central focus on power, mm-hmm. they've they're, been excellent. They're number one. And, and, and they were very, uh, again, with the Tabo and Becky supporting them, because South Africa is a there big power. Mm-hmm. And then once Tabo made the decision that he didn't trust Morgan Tsongirai to it. be the next player, that was that. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it became easy to maneuver and create a framework that would result in a coexistence, but, but not giving him any access to real power. So, so, so again, once the momentum of the economy, mm-hmm. which is unpaid inherited, uh, was enough for people to keep focusing to say, ah, we don't want to be involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Let's just focus <laughs> on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then two, day, two years down the line, now you see what's happened. Mm-hmm. We are now back to square one. They can't fix the economy, and now people have realized that now if we don't take these things into our own hands. We're going back. We're going back. And now the good thing about this is that it's people who are leading politicians rather than politicians leading This people. is the beautiful yeah. thing about this flag. Arnold, question regarding that. Do you think it is it is a, a common factor within Africa? I always say this, coming. We always say that Africans do not care who their leaders are. True. Africans do not care about human rights in the notion of human rights. Yeah. Give them... A, a roof over their heads Give them food A small car We always say yeah. You know A bit of money yeah. for You know A couple of bottles Of Glen social, yeah, social activity there. Social activity Why Arnold? But every country is like that It's not Africa alone it's, true. it's not Africa alone In fact that's the aspiration Of ordinary people People don't want the burden Of being given leadership To run countries Because they, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, yeah, it's a huge responsibility yeah. But because they take Those responsibilities seriously Yet with us in, in Africa There has been this misfortune Of delinking The type of leader we choose 
to the type of economic condition that we, we want we experience as a result of that choice mm. so 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 in a way we are almost responsible for the policies that the leaders we install in power end up inflicting on us mm-hmm. so 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 that's the situation but in the rest of the world that's the reality once the people many people want to have jobs they want to have homes uh, school for their, yes, kids, for their kids and then to live peacefully and not to be burdened by state matters and the unfortunate part about that is that it actually makes you realize that we as human beings just limit ourselves with the amount of capacity that we have on 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 a, on a majority scale we should be able to decide that not these few things that we mentioned food shelter vehicles and school and yeah. education those can't be the only factors that we can be fighting mm-hmm. for in life, mm-hmm. you understand, in terms of moving forward. And it's worse that... I, I think, think it's selfish. Yeah, it's because very then selfish. you don't care about the future generations. Yeah. And it's good mm-hmm. you say that because then that actually means that I think with Africa, the worst part of it is that we're more selfish than the rest of the world. Yeah. We're exactly the same as everybody else, but we're just more selfish. Mm-hmm. And that's why you find our leaders hoarding. They're hoarders. <laughs> yeah. all, all hoard. No, no, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. All, they all do. our leaders are hoarders. And that's our major problem. We're not saying that... Don't take. We're not saying you cannot have. We're not saying you do not have access. We've historically we already know that if you're a leader and you're in this you're bringing up a very good point. Yeah. I'm not sure if you read Chinua Achebe, Man of the People. He tackles this one very well, and he says Africans have had so little for so long yeah. that when there's the opportunity to get, yeah. <laughs> you take as much as you can in anticipation of the the problem, you see, the problem that we have now politically is that now you've got individuals who have a great understanding of what it means to lead people. You don't lead people as one individual. No. For instance, Mukabe does not sit there and say, ah, well, I'm the, the be-all and end-all. No, it's actually the people around him in the Politburo that make decisions that he then authorizes and says, okay, cool. Yeah, but that's, that's patronage. That's the system of patronage. And, 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 and the, the, the closer you are, the proximity of power and economics, you, you know, they've put them together in a way that if you are at the highest levels of power, then you also get the highest economic opportunities. Of course. Mm-hmm. And then that's corruption and that's patronage. 100%. Yeah. So, so in the selfishness, if you look at it like what's happening now in Zimbabwe, one of the cases that I've been dealing with is about our sisters who are being human trafficked to Kuwait. Yes, yes, yes You yes. find that the main people who are involved in the business at the sending level yes. in terms of selling our sisters, mm-hmm. it's actually fellow African brothers wow. and sisters in Zimbabwe wow. who are working with syndicates of, of traffickers. Course, so, and and that, that's the height of selfishness. To, and desperation and as well. As desperation mm-hmm. as well. Because that is, that is totally, that, that is a non-Zimbabwean trait. I mean, Let's be honest. I mean, you have criminals in every society, regardless of where you come from. Yeah. But historically, Zimbabweans do not involve themselves to that level of crime, especially when it comes to drugs, human trafficking, and things like that. That just shows you how desperate we are now yeah. to actually make means of survival and, 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 and moving forward. But it's the mentality you were talking about of yeah. greed. Because if you look at our political leaders, okay, these ones I gave about trafficking, they're yeah. selling our sisters. Yeah. But our leaders, they sell the, the, the core aspects of our mineral, of our yes, economy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They sell our mines, our minerals, you know, precious to China, yeah. to Russia. And when in regards to that, because yeah. we're running out of time, in regards, within, the, within the same context that you're speaking now, can you also delve into the human rights situation in Zimbabwe currently? Especially looking at the former POSA. Did we eradicate POSA? After no, it's still there. POSA has not been eradicated. No. Even after the new constitution. No. 
because they're they're cracking down. This is possible. Yeah. That's that's an effect yeah, right exactly. now. You know, yeah. getting into people's WhatsApps, yeah. blocking um, access to information. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because okay. the thing is, uh, it's about the harmonisation. Sorry for for, for the uh, general public. Possess the Public Order and Security Act. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then the thing is that this is about harmonisation between the constitution and the laws. In 2013, we adopted an excellent constitution mm-hmm. that would be incompatible to exist side by side with POSA. Mm-hmm. But then for POSA to be repealed and for all the other laws to be aligned to the constitution, that's a parliamentary process. Yes. And ZANU-PF has got a there's a slap majority. majority in parliament and they're the ones who basically are supposed to be driving the reform agenda mm-hmm. they're not going to do it because POSA is a good instrument for repression and in an environment where people are beginning to express themselves like they are doing now mm-hmm. ZANU-PF government would need tools that it can use to control under the cloud of legality or the clock of legality and and, and so using POSA to dismantle assembly and association uh, using the Broadcasting Services Act to prevent you know free access to information and full enjoyment of freedom of expression that's a result that's really a government that does not care about implementing the new constitution so again that's the responsibility of the people to ensure that they keep putting pressure until these laws are reformed what's happening now creates a very good opportunity from a lawyer perspective mm-hmm. that anyone who gets arrested for associating and expressing themselves, you can then at least mount constitutional challenges with uh, orders uh, that you want the court to at least give some specific timelines within which yeah. laws must be reformed. Was that not in the global political agreement? To say before the next election, certain things must be put in place. It was, but that was being supervised and uh, by Tabo Mbeki. And, uh, and, and, and in 2013, his mandate came to an end. Mm-hmm. So once his mandate came to an end, the responsibility is now for so Zimbabweans that, to do it. Okay. But you do, you do realize that every, everything has been a trapdoor for Zimbabwe for a long time. We've always been, we're always being led into a trapdoor. And I think even in, 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 in signing off on those agreements, they knew very well that Tabo Mbeki was up. It was over. Was not going to get an opportunity to be able to then follow up on all of those things. How? Putting our confidence in other people is the worst thing. And I think Arnold was very right to say that it was perfect that this movement, this flag, um, has come from the people. Because even if we look at uh, Morgan Changirai, there was a point in time where he refused to adhere to the constitution of his own party. What if we had made him the leader of the country? But why are you always so worried about that? I'm always worried about it because I think politicians will always be politicians. But this is it. But this is so who next? No, but the importance of the, the importance of Kesu's point about especially the question of internal democracy. Mm-hmm. What I saw in the, the small stint that I got involved in politics myself <laughs> was that uh, without internal democracy and without media people like yourselves yeah. focusing on strengthening of internal democracy you cannot expect people who are not democratic intra-party yeah. to suddenly become democratic no, when they are in power exactly. you cannot expect a person who is corrupt uh, before they get into power to suddenly have a strong moral authority not to be corrupt when they are in when power exactly. so I think these signs, the signals of uh, a potentially popular but maybe dangerous leader, <laughs> they, they manifest themselves slowly it, and, and it's important for the media to, to, to begin yes, to and see it's, that it's happening again with AC Lumumba he is cut from the cloth of Zanupia. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. then now the people, just because he said F you to Robert Mugabe, they're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. We are quick to be. <laughs> no, <laughs> political literacy. I said it earlier on political literacy. literacy. Okay. What, I, what I like about the people when it comes to AC, unfortunately, is that, unfortunately, actually, is that they see past all of his shenanigans. 
You see, we can't have so many of that same type of leader come about mm -hmm. and won't be able to read in between the lines. I mean, with him, it's clear. It's direct. He's working towards putting himself... It's as direct to you, Kamu. No, I think it's direct to... You think that is to ordinary people? I've got Do you know how many likes he's I've got, got no, on his like, Facebook page? People who don't even like him like his Facebook page. Liking okay. is, is, a, is a natural process for us now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or, or the expression <laughs> that I'm following. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I've, seen, I've seen what you're doing. I like the fact that you're doing it, but yeah. I don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> if you go through the comments, a lot of people have come out and said, look, buddy, we know you. We don't need this right now. <laughs> you, you are the last, the last dose that we need at this particular stage when we're trying to make things make sense. Yeah. The only type of leader that can come into the country now and actually stabilize things is, has to be an individual who is not going to be the, the be-all and end-all. Mm -hmm. He cannot be a president. He has to form part of a very strong collective that represents everybody and that is speaking and saying that you are just our spokesperson. We don't need a president now. We need a spokesperson. For a group that leads the country. So the spokesperson comes and says, this is what they've said, and this is what we're going to do. Thank you. Bye. That's why Peter's <laughs> has been talking about the transitional, technical, technocratic transitional authority. Yeah. I think I've heard him speak about that, to say you need a group of technocrats in different sectors yes. who come and offer technocratic transitional leadership that results ultimately in the political process catching up. Oh, yeah. But mm. what we need, I think, is the country to be back on track economically and yeah. uh, in terms of international exactly. relations. Yeah. That's true, Arnold. Wasn't that one of the um, requirements that is with Theresa May? I think people are assuming, the, the UK is assuming that Theresa May might become yeah, the next prime minister. Prime minister. Uh, we're looking at David Cameron leaving on October 1st, by October. Mm -hmm. So if Theresa May and, and <laughs> Patrick Chinamasa decides to go to the UK, uh, the country, his president, uh, last said that, uh, you can keep your, your, your I'll keep my Zimbabwe. He was there. I think he might still be there. He was there in the yeah, past couple of days, you know, okay. seeking I 10 yeah. billion. I think he probably left recently. But remember, mm, British, ties, British, British ties with Zimbabwe have always been strong. Everything we've been sold has been a lie. They've always been strong, but I'm just saying what Arnold just mentioned yeah. was the the, um, the institution that would come in between this government and our next our maybe next elections, elections yeah. of technocrats. That's yeah. one of the things that they said, you know, we need someone, an institution or maybe a collective of civic society yeah, and, you know, technocrats and so forth it's to come solution. in, fix things before we move on to the next it's election. But this will be the second time that we're doing it. Could we honestly have... You know, in, in building a country, you may have to keep experimenting. Of course. And, and, and in particular at this stage, we don't have too many options because, you know, what is there is completely unsustainable. We're going to reach a situation where if we get this into open conflict, mm -hmm. uh, then we're going to destroy a lot. Yes. And, 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 and Zimbabwe don't need that. We're too educated and mm -hmm. at the same time, I think, focused on being able to get things right without, you know, killing without, each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And destroying our infrastructure. Arnold, in conclusion, what do you think? Uh, the state of the nation, the way forward, where do you see us going? I think, I think what you're seeing, it's the beginning of, um, maybe I can say, short to medium term contradictions. So it's almost like labor. You know, when you, the, the labor pains, they start, <laughs> the, the contractions are mild. Mm -hmm. This, this, it's exciting for people, but mm -hmm. I think it's very mild. Okay. It's very mild. So, so, and then it will, there'll be a period of lull where things will appear like they're normalizing. Mm -hmm. And then because there's no solution, 
there's going to be more contractions. And so I think the pains will increase until we can, the, the, the candles delivered. If you were at the forefront of, let's say, this flag, the movement, what do you think the solution would be? Because you just said there's no solution. What would the immediate solution be? Not to say that it would fix the country, but what do you think needs to happen we'll put us on now? The right path, yeah. Um, you can only rely on the government of the day if you want things to be fixed in terms of normalizing in, in various sectors. There has to be some reforms around the ability of people to enjoy their human rights, you know, association, expression, movement, so that when they are unhappy, they use their channels and frameworks through which they can have express, their, themselves, express yeah. themselves to avoid uh, this aggravating itself into open conflict. Mm. Then on the economy, you also need a situation where corruption is tackled, mm-hmm. at least up to a certain point where the leakages in the economy have to be contained. Uh, and then and then you have to have a legal system, you know, a police force that is able to any case of corruption that is reported has to be investigated properly, brought to the courts within specific time frames. So mm-hmm. there has to be a development of a protocol that touches on the judges, the prosecutors, the police and lawyers on how cases of corruption that are reported are fast-tracked okay. and the creation of a corruption court that works 24-7 to ensure that the confidence is given back to the country. Exactly. And then the question of uh, land and um, uh, private property, I think it's going to be important if we are going to remain in a neoliberal economy. You need to give guarantees that uh, if you own your property, it's yours. It's not going to be taken and that the legal system can protect. Exactly. And these things can be done without putting money. But these are confidence measures. And and the problem with what Shinamasa is doing now is that he is looking for investments that gobble money in an environment where there's no confidence and where these basic things mm-hmm. are not being addressed. For example, things like uh, beating up people. Mm-hmm. What does it cost in terms of money to stop beating people? Exactly. If things like torture, how much of foreign direct investment <laughs> do you need to stop torture? So, so, so I think there are so many things that just need leadership and the political determination and sending very strong messages of confidence that it's no longer business as usual. Do you see I it happening? It won't because you don't have the type of leadership. It's a leadership question in Zimbabwe. So do you think it's going to boil down to open conflict? It might. The only problem is that we we also have faith in elections, even as elections don't deliver. Mm. So right now people are talking of these stairways and they're putting them in the context of a build-up to 2018. 18, which is two yes, years 2018, now. 2018, I think, is a stolen election in the absence of reforms. Exactly. The result is not. There's, no, prob- there's no point in, in, in going for elections yet. No. It, that, that's ridiculous. Without reforms. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Arnold, if you were... In Zimbabwe now, you know, the owner of a tech shop, uh, who would your options be if elections were in three months' time? With, with or without reform? <laughs> no, no, let's just say if you're an ordinary yeah. person, if you were in Zim right now, because I wanted to tackle political parties, we don't have that much time to tackle, you know, yeah. our options as yeah. Zimbabweans. Yeah. No, no, I think, I think in terms of technocratic capacity, Tendabit is a party. It has got the best technocratic people. Which is a MDC renewal. Which, no, no. Tendabit is part of the People's Democratic Party, PDP. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, because you've got Gordon Moyo there, Tendabiti, Settlement, Chikwinya, um, Jacob Mafumi. You have, mm-hmm. a, few, you yeah. have a few competent individuals. Competent mm-hmm. in, from a technocratic, technocratic yeah, but they're not as popular. No. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the dilemma we have in Zimbabwe, that the popular 
politicians have the limited technical capacity. And then the <laughs> technically competent politicians don't care about don't have the people. The, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and that has to be, this is why I think the talk about, uh, um, coalition is important mm-hmm. because you need popular leaders to work together with technocratically competent leaders. Does it leaders. make sense for an educated nation that someone who can fix the country doesn't automatically become popular? But that's the political interest yeah. I was referring to so, earlier on. I couldn't yes, think political yes, interest yes. where people don't connect the choice of a leader with the quality of uh, economic opportunity that they get. They they don't realize that these two things are directly related. So ultimately, when you vote for a person who will not create a political opportunity for you, you're basically voting. You're basically voting for poverty, your own poverty. Exactly. And you are responsible for that situation in the initial sense. So so the the the, the contradiction that then arises. The inability to link that contradiction and discomfort with your own initial choice of choosing a leader who doesn't have the technical competence to deliver the country. It then points at the responsibility as being both of the leader and those who choose him. I think my own opinion and my own choice would be Kalisto Pasua, who is the current uh, Zimbabwe national football team uh, coach. Because <laughs> he's had the most success with a group of people. I mean, with, with, with the nothing, with the nothingness that he has, there, he has managed to guide us now to Afcon. No, Sewikno gave him money. Well, look, then I'll take him and Sewikno and 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 and, 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 and <laughs> had the bright suits and the videos. So, so, that's, so that's my three. But so where, did Kalisto, we, where did Wikno and and and, and where did Wikno get the money? Yeah, that one's a very tricky conversation. Probably part. Probably part of that fifteen billion. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they continue to flaunt it, Arnold. Yeah. They and flaunt it on 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 social media. That we have money, and we are yeah. there liking the page. Ah, he has patronage. Money. That's patronage. Again, it's political literacy, and unfortunately, my colleague here is reflecting that type of uh, voter. Who votes on on the basis of uh, sh- uh, not you know superficial factors? Yes. yes, because if if we can is supporting, yeah, and and we then say so, which means he must be president. Oh yeah. Then 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 you will actually realize that once you put him up there, then you still everything. Yeah, no. <laughs> give me give me any other competent individual, and I'll make a better decision. But for now, that's my trick. Fidza Kalisto. And Wigner. Yeah. If I can have that combination in government, I'm fine. That's it. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> we, you'll never stop talking with Arnold and Kamwin <laughs> in the same building. Zimbabweans, I hope you have data yeah. <laughs> because this podcast has just gone into an hour. That's right. Uh, and it's always like this when we get Arnold around, uh, whether it's uh, around the fire yeah. in uh, Mutare. <laughs> Or a beer. Or a beer. <laughs> Somewhere in Harare at the yeah. Jemerson Hotel. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. dilapidated Jemerson Hotel. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming in, Arnold. Um, it's been very enlightening and, as extreme. usual, very educating. Extreme, extreme. extreme. My it's pleasure. Fantastic thank you. Experience. Thank you, guys. And you're doing a good job. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. And please, your short political stint. In five to ten years, let's let's extend it. <laughs> I think no. When we get an opportunity to go into administration, at least we have someone to nominate for a minister of justice. Yeah, yeah. And, and, under Pasua's yeah. government. Oh, <laughs> who would want to be under Pasua's government? It's winning now. Thank you, everybody. It Thanks is. for joining us. Don't forget it's clipcentral.com and look out for the podcast. It's hashtag Zim Conversations. I think we want to call this one the Human Rights Factor. Okay. The Human Rights Factor. That sounds good. Okay. Yes, fantastic. Good. Clips and the revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliff Central. Don't